From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Sky Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Movies, television, books, podcasts, we love stories. And in our genre, the world of horror, we love imaginative stories, stories with believable and understandable characters in a world that steps boldly into the dark. Whether the monsters are supernatural or a guy with a knife and a hockey mask, we are along for the ride, hoping for the new twist, the exciting revelation, the startling turns of events. Mostly we talk about the people who make movies and television here on Postmortem, but some of our most fascinating conversations have been with authors like Stephen King, Clive Barker, Grady Hendrix, and others. Almost always they are linked to film adaptations, but I think we also need to make clear that the books themselves are important to the genre on their own, and not necessarily as the jumping off point for filmed adaptations. Before my love of movies and TV, there were the books. I loved devouring Bradbury and Matheson, Poe and Stoker, anything spooky that I could get my hands on before I seriously started writing short stories at the age of 12. They were, of course, scary stories, usually with an O. Henry twist at the end. There was a story I remember about a character who was buried alive and after near death and sure madness, dug himself free. And the last line was, and I remember it well from my 12 year old self, how convenient for the dozen hungry rats that poured in. I got my first movie camera shortly thereafter, but it did not pull me away from writing fiction. It just supplemented it. The love of language and the joy of wordplay, writing stories for the page and not for casts and crews and theatrical play stays with me to this day. I write as eagerly for fiction as I do for screen material. I do love the written word. 
Our guest, Paul Tremblay, is one of the premier authors of contemporary horror. His books are rich in texture, story, and character, and have earned high regard by readers and critics everywhere. But he has just had his book, Cabin at the End of the World, turned into the film Knock at the Cabin by M. Night Shyamalan. We'll talk to Paul about words and pictures and stories after this. In honor of Black History Month, Dread Central and The Girl That's Scary podcast are celebrating Black horror creators for the whole month of February. From video interviews with Akela Cooper and Nay Beavers, and panel discussions with Black horror gamers, to live readings and an article series, it's all about celebrating Black content creators. So make sure to follow Dread Central and Girl That's Scary, and listen to Girl That's Scary on the Dread Podcast Network to see all of the amazing content coming this month. So, Paul, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm honored. And man, that short list of, of writers, with the exception of Grady Hendrix. I'm joking. Grady's a good friend. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, honored to be here with you, Mick. Well, it's really great. You're, you have an interesting background. You're very left brain, right brain in that you got your master's degree in mathematics. So where did you imagine that your life was headed when you studied mathematics? Oh, it certainly writing was not even like a glimmer. Um, it's sort of hard to explain why I did. Uh, yeah, but like, you know, in high school and in college, you know, math was my best subject. So I just stuck with it. Um, I'd always been a horror fan, but it had been movies. Um, and I wasn't much of a reader as a kid. I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to say, like I read, for, you know, I was a good student. Like I would read what was assigned, but uh, yeah. Um, so well, it's quite happened, ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what had happened, you know, we can, as so many horror writers or people interested in horror can thank Stephen King. Uh, I had read two things back to back that really turned me into a reader. One was I read a Joyce Carol Oates short story called, where are you going? Where have you been? That was assigned. I was a senior in college and I had to take, an English 101 class to fulfill a requirement that I did not fill prior foolishly. But that <laughs> class was amazing. Like I remember reading her story and thinking, oh, I didn't know people wrote things like this. And right after that class for my 22nd birthday, my, you know, after graduation, my girlfriend, who's my wife, Lisa, bought me Stephen King's The Stand. Um, uh -huh. and she was a big Stephen King fan. So I read The Stand. And then when I went away to grad school for two years, you know, grad school is a much different experience than undergrad. There was a lot more just time to myself. I just read every Stephen King book that I could find. And once I hit Dance Macabre, I, you know, I, I, I discovered Peter Straub and Shirley Jackson and, and Clive Barker. And after two years of struggling to get my master's by the skin of my teeth, uh, I had this weird itch to try to write a, a story. So when did that start? You were about 21, 22 when you wrote your first story? Yeah, probably 23 when I wrote my first story. So that was, you know, I would say the fall of 1995. Like that's when I first started teaching high school math is when I first said, oh, you know what, I'm going to try writing a story. And it, and it was a very strange sort of impulse because I had never written fiction. Like I didn't study it. Like why, why would I think that I could do it? But I think I was just so, I was just so passionate and excited about what I was reading. It's like I wanted to give it a try. And I don't know. I think that's what happens to a lot of adults or maybe people when they're younger is you sort of realize, uh, it's okay to like things. It's okay to be passionate about them, especially in art, right? Um, oh, God, yeah. So it's like, yeah, I want to try that. <laughs> but it was movies first that that hooked you into the horror genre. Yes. What were the movies that really first sparked your imagination in, so, you know, in the dark side? Yeah, my, I mean, my earliest memories is like a seven, eight-year-old. Uh, we're watching Creature Double Feature, 
which was uh, a local program just outside of Boston. You know, this is pre-cable television. I'm aging myself here. You know, uh, UHF, not as much as me. <laughs> <laughs> UHF Channel 56. So the first movie was always a Godzilla kaiju movie. And that's what really drew me in because I like dinosaurs and Godzilla was like a, a fire-breathing dinosaur, right? <laughs> yeah. And the second, the second movie was more a straightforward horror movie. Uh, and those all gave me nightmares, even the silly ones. When I say silly ones, like looking back now, like Attack of the Killer Shrews. Oh, uh, I, I had Attack of the Killer the Shrews. With the dogs in the shrew suits. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and they would show Hammer horror movies too, some good ones. But like those, you know, gave me terrible nightmares. Christopher Lee as a vampire I had so many nightmares as a really young kid featuring him. So I had always had like this attraction to it, but also like I was so terrified by it. Um, and I still, I'm happy to say I still have that as an adult. Well, the fact that you are still terrified maybe makes an even stronger author in that regard because it's not just trying to scare others, but it's reaching deep into the soul of your, the well of your own soul for that. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know how you approach it, Mick, when you're either writing or directing, but like for me, like the, the, what scares people is so subjective, right? Like what scares you might not scare me. Same with humor. So I honestly just try to, focus on moving myself. Like I imagine myself as the reader and then the trust is that there are enough like weird people like me out there that, <laughs> you know, will connect with the books. I mean, I, I can't think of any other way of doing it. Cause I couldn't imagine trying to say, how am I going to scare like this amorphous blob of people? I have no idea what scares them. Like I know what scares me. I know what moves me emotionally and that's what I'll sort of lean into. Yeah. Well, fear is universal. And I, I believe yeah. that like you're saying, if it scares me, I trust it's going to scare others. Yeah. And uh, so had uh, so the movies that you grew up on were the ones that were on double feature, creature double feature. Um, were there particular favorites? Did you pay attention to credits of writers and directors and things like that? Um, not so much. I mean, for, in, in terms of, uh, of, of those, but there were movies that I definitely like from that early period. Uh, Equator Mass in the Pit is an all time favorite. Oh, yeah. Um, Love that movie. And I think it holds up amazingly well, even if some of the practical effects don't. Um, it was from there, though, like my my neighborhood in the 80s was like one of the earliest <laughs> neighborhoods to get cable TV. So it sort of quickly graduates at things that were shown on HBO and like heavy rotation. Um, the funny part was my brother, a hardcore gore hound, <laughs> but he's five years younger than me. Uh, and I have vivid memories of, of watching uh, Poltergeist, which was always on um, on HBO when it first came on. And the, the, the tearing off the face scene, which yeah. is really, really bothered me. And you know, so those would, hands are Steven Spielberg's hands. Yeah, right. It's amazing. Uh, well, with that scene, I would like, okay, I'm the older brother. I would take my brother, Dan. Say, All right, Dan, you can't watch this. You're too, you know, you're too young. But it was really as I didn't want to watch it. He, he was <laughs> totally into it, even though he was five years younger. We still sort of have that relationship. <laughs> so you were lucky to have a brother who was into the genre as well. Were, did you have peers and friends who were also genre fans? Um, not so much. Not until, geez, not until I really sort of joined like the horror writing community was sort of like I found sort of my people. Like in high school, I was kind of a loner, wasn't that popular. Um, you know, so much of my uh, experience was just coming home by myself and watching movies or, uh, you know, my brother, because he was younger, he would be there. You know, my father was definitely into, he was, he was into all like speculative sort of genre. He was big into science fiction. Um, he was like, <laughs> he, he was, a like, a, a, he, I think he had joined like a token fan club. Cause I remember he had a pin that said Frodo lives and he used to smoke a pipe 
and I wouldn't find out in so many decades later what was actually in that pipe. <laughs> uh, he was definitely a flower child of the 60s. Uh, so, I mean, there was, there was that within the household, which is really cool, because I know a lot of people don't necessarily have that sort of love or embrace at home, especially, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s. I mean, it was never looked down upon in the house, which is so maybe was the a reverse experience, like, because at school, like, I didn't really talk to anybody about that stuff. But at home, I did. So you had a creative environment at home. Uh, which yes. was encouraging. And and as you started doing fiction, yeah, you were well into adulthood and away from home. But what was the parental reaction to that? Because you had taken such a very other side of the mind direction uh, with your life and deciding, I'm going to go into the creative world. Yeah, I mean, they're always very supportive. Like, I have no idea how, you know, if they thought it was ser how serious I was at first. I mean, because I, I still... Like I've taught high school mathematics for 27 years. This is my first year that I'm not teaching. Oh, wow. Uh, I did not yeah. realize that. Once <laughs> yeah. you had the success of Head Full of Ghosts, I would have thought this is my career change. Yeah. I mean, there's a few reasons why, like we can talk about that, that I kept on to that, but just to, I guess, finish off the other question. No, my, yeah. my parents were super, uh, super supportive. You know, my dad, when he was younger, messed around with writing some stories and he wrote a few that he submitted science fiction stories. In fact, one brief funny story when I, I had worked as a slush reader for a fantasy magazine in the in the first decade of the 2000s. And it was just called Simply Fantasy Magazine. And my dad said, hey, can I submit my story? I thought he was joking. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I'm not, I'll send it directly to the publisher, not me. You know, I don't want a conflict of interest in my, and the, and the editor publisher was like, well, you know, this is a little bit too YA for us. He took that rejection very hard. He still oh, jokes about ouch. he still jokes about like my son rejected me. He's like, well, <laughs> not well, official. Welcome to the club. Yeah. <laughs> Keep the letter on the wall. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh you had an interesting experience. You worked at the Parker Brothers factory where they yeah. make boards in Salem, Massachusetts. Now I went to Salem the first time to location scout before I started writing Hocus Pocus. Oh. And I went back every Halloween for like six years mm. because Salem at Halloween is an amazing, amazing place. But you actually worked in the Parker Brothers factory. Tell me about your Salem experience. Yeah. So, I mean, it's what a weird town, man. <laughs> you know, on, on one hand, like there's so much historical cool stuff, but there are also definitely parts of Salem that, uh, you know, financially and economically are pretty blighted. But then you've got like the touristy section which is sort of celebrating in a weird way, like the state sanctioned death of 19 people. It's, it's really wild how it has become like this Mecca for Hollywood uh, or for Halloween, excuse me. Um, so when I was getting, it was just always there. Like my dad had worked at the Parker brothers factory for 25 years. And then when oh, I was, wow. when I was in high school and then in early to middle college, I would work there for the summers. Um, yeah. You know, my dad tried to mess with me. He said, uh, you know, because uh, Parker Brothers made Ouija boards. <laughs> I don't know who makes them now, maybe Hasbro. And I used to be sort of terrified of them until actually I worked on an assembly line and mass produced them. So that took a little bit of the, <laughs> it took a little bit of the magic away, which was fine for me because I didn't want to be afraid of them. But oh yeah, my dad would say, oh yeah, like uh, when he was working in the mailroom, he's like, yeah, this older woman came by once and she was kind of disheveled and she had this beat up Ouija board. She said, oh, it has to be destroyed by the people who made it and just left it with them and you know, I, I assume he's he was just playing my leg, but maybe he wasn't. I don't know. It sounds like something someone would do. Yeah. But, well, yeah, let's talk about when you're a teacher. Are, are you writing on uh, weekends and at night afterwards? And was it kind of a hobby? Did you actually see it as your future vocation? 
Um, it, certainly at the beginning, I didn't necessarily see it as a future vocation. You know, I had goals, like I wanted to like get stories and have them published. You know, at, um, at a certain point, I started selling, you know, maybe in the early 2000s, some short stories for what was for what the HWA considered professional rate, which was only like three cents a word or something. But, you know, still, that was like a big deal. Um, so I don't know, like it, for me, it was it was always about like I had this sort of, I couldn't deny it urge to try to write these stories. So it was always like, I always sort of focused on, I want to tell the story for some reason. Um, and I hope I always have that because I don't want it to be where it's like, I dread going to the keyboard and writing something that I'm not necessarily excited about, which I think is also part of the reason why I've always kept the writing job uh, or teaching job, excuse me. Um, but in the very beginning, when, again, as a young writer, when my kids were born in 2000, 2004, for me, it was a great lesson in time management. I was just looking to steal an hour or two, you know, five to six, seven days a week if I could. Sometimes that meant when the kids were napping. Sometimes that meant if I had a free period at school. I can tell you in like the early 2000s, I was working on stories when the kids were taking their quizzes. They could have been cheating their asses off. I have no idea. <laughs> um, like I wrote like a big chunk of a novel and my son was at a baseball clinic. You know, it was like two hours away, so I couldn't just drop him off and leave. And so it was things like that, like where I was trying not to take away from, you know, my my role of, of being a father and a husband too, is like just trying to find these downtimes, uh, you know, and I, I would look to fill it with writing. And frankly, that was kind of exciting because when it came time, like when I found that free time, I didn't have to like mess around with like writing rituals or stuff like that. I was ready to go. It's like, okay, th this is my hour. I'm here. Let's do it. So as far as your process goes, because your time management was so fractured, not just with your, your day job, but with a family, um, would you outline, would you, or would you just write for that hour, you do four or five pages and then come back to it in a day or two, or uh, what was your actual process like? Yeah. So, I mean, for novels, typically I have outlined, um, but, you know, in the beginning, I was mainly almost all short stories. So I kept little notebooks and I wouldn't outline the short stories I usually have. And even with the novels, I usually have a beginning and an ending. Uh, and the bulk of the work is trying to get from A to Z. Um, you know, which probably isn't always the best way of doing it, but it's the way that works for me. Um, but, you know, I always would, would find that, like, I'm sure same is the case for you. Like when I'm in it, when I'm right, working on a story actively, I'm always thinking about it. Um, if I'm walking the dog, driving in my car, uh, you know, especially actually my best ideas come in the shower or, or in the bathroom. It's amazing. It's like, I think I've subconsciously trained myself to, to problem solve while I'm in the shower. So it's just even though I only got to write for an hour, hour and a half, you know, I definitely feel like I put more time in during the day just by thinking about it. Now, because you were still young in your writing career when you had kids, um, I imagine that that deepened your work tremendously. Oh, it definitely affected my work. Um, and it was funny. My, so my wife, who was the Stephen King fan before I was, <laughs> you know, she read almost all his books in her teens. When she had kids for at least the first like 10 years or so, um she could no longer watch horror couldn't deal with it and wow. i was totally the opposite like and i had someone point this out to me i didn't recognize this but so many of my stories dealt with parents or, or kids or, or or some sort of permutation of that and it was sort of obvious like i had friends like you write a lot about parenting and, and kids you realize that I'm like oh geez so by the time like a head full of ghosts rolled around it's like well you know i think you know everyone says write what you know and i think it pretty universally agrees it's terrible writing advice i think the better advice is lean into your obsessions. So obviously I had <laughs> this obsession, you know, dealing with 
you know, I think the universal experience of being a child, right? It's one of the few universal experiences that we can have and, and you know, pass back and forth, you know, uh, to, to readers or between readers and writers. So to me, it's, I've always been fascinated by, by that relationship. Were you a fearful child? Oh yeah. Uh, I, I slept with, <laughs> I slept with stuffed animals arranged around my head to a, to, a, I can't even tell you how old I was until I stopped doing that. I shared a bedroom with my brother and, you know, when we were younger, I used to treat him like the canary in the coal mine. Like I would send him upstairs first. And if the monster didn't get him, then I could, it was okay for me to go upstairs. And you were 10 um, and he was five. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, our basement was scary. I was always sprinting up those stairs. If I had to go downstairs to get something. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, do you find that uh, either of your kids shared that in their early years? So both, um, both my kids are, are very creative people, which is really amazing. My son's a, a music production major, actually at uh, Occidental College in LA. Oh. Um, yeah, he's a senior, so he's, he's almost out. And my daughter uh, is very into art. Um, and she's actually started practicing tattoos. She just turned 18. So, you know, both sort of different spectrums. It's em Emma is more my horror kid than Cole. I, uh, he's watched some things, like he loves the thing. You think that's great. Um, but I scarred him with... <laughs> not even a horror movie but it's sort of a kinder kinder trauma movie i scarred him by showing him one of my favorites watership down too early oh which let, beautiful which you won't let me forget yeah um yeah it's fine uh, my my son cole's dating a, a girl who's super into horror makes him watch like texas chainsaw massacre so <laughs> kind of funny he's been cursed he's coming into it <laughs> kicking and screaming i guess yes he is <laughs> one way or another well tell me what it was like when you managed to complete your first novel you know, writing short stories is one thing. And it took me until fairly late into life to actually complete a novel and go, wow, I can do it. Well, tell me about that sense of accomplishment. Oh, it's definitely thrilling. You know, and it's funny, like my first published novel was 2009, but it was probably the fourth and a half that I'd written. Um, and that book was called A Little Sleep. Uh, right. And it's actually sort of a quirky crime, uh, crime novel. Um, and it's still out there. We can yeah, along. still out there. My publisher just reissued it, which was kind of cool. Um, oh, great. Yeah, so my first attempt at a novel was terrible. It was definitely like a Stephen King ripoff. <laughs> it was about 60,000 words. But even when I was writing it, I sort of knew, uh, you know, this isn't very good, but I just want to finish it. Like, I got to complete it. Like, I don't know, I can't, like, it's hard to say thinking back now, but I th I'm pretty sure I, you know, I knew where I realized, like, hey, you know, I've I've gotten decent at writing short stories a novel is a whole different beast. So I can't expect to be good at it right off the bat. Um, so the first novel that I felt like that, wow, like I actually did it. This is something that's good. I'm going to try to sell this. <laughs> it wasn't horror, which was strange. It was, it was called Phobia. And it was sort of a quirky plotless comedy set in Boston about a character who had all these strange fears. Um, I got two years of agent, hundreds of agent rejections. And a lot of them were sort of cool, but frustrating. Like, wow, you're really talented. We don't know who to sell this to. But I did land my agent almost by accident. So that book, and you know, he tried to sell it. He was up front. He's like, hey, I think this is a hard sell, but I think you're very talented. I want to work with you. So we weren't unable to sell that book. But within the next year, um, and he actually suggested, hey, maybe you know, you have this mystery novel idea. Why don't you try writing a uh, an outline first? So there's actually some plot, <laughs> which is really which was really good advice, which is what I did. Um, so that happened really quickly. But, you know, it took years, years and failed attempts at novels to get to that point. Um, and I would say briefly with A Head Full of Ghosts, what was most satisfying about that book or one of the most satisfying parts was it was a horror novel. 
for some reason in my first 20, 15 to 20 years of writing, all my short stories or all my all my short stories were horror. All my attempts at longer fiction were uh, were, were humorous. You know, I, which in a way makes sense because I, horror and humor are so closely related, right? They're, like you can react to the world's, <laughs> you can react to the world's um, absurdities in one of two ways, usually either by satirical laughter or by screaming in horror. Um, sorry, yeah, that's a long rambling answer. No, no, it's great. Uh, are you uh, familiar with this line? Scared the living hell out of me and I'm pretty hard to scare. <laughs> Oh, on August 19th, 2015, <laughs> yeah. you mean Stephen King tweeting about a head full of ghosts? Yes, quite familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, was that, do you feel that was a big part of the launch of your career? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to measure how that helped. So a head full of ghosts had come out in June, early June, you know, it had done very well critically, um, you know, got a lot of great reviews and, you know, for the first time in like the New York times and stuff like that. Um, but when Stephen tweeted and, and what he tweeted, like about scaring the living hell out of it, really resonated with people. So, you know, that tweet just, you know, took off like wildfire and, you know, the book sold like crazy for September and October. And yeah, and that book still sells. It's pretty cool. Like I have a, a good friend, a writer that I admire, Nick Mamatas, who's always said, I, you know, his goal is like, I want to write a cult novel, something that just sells constantly. Because you know, especially in the publishing industry, it doesn't work anymore. You get like two or three months and that's it. Um, so that book, I've been very fortunate. Like it's, you know, geez, almost eight years later. And it's still, you know, if you check it's Amazon ranking, it's still, people are still buying copies. It's really cool. It's still way up there. And, you know, I remember this most effectively. It happened to you and it happened to Clive Barker. I have seen the future of horror mm. and his name is Clive Barker. That quote from Stephen King is just something that opens doors. It, it gives people a reason to discover you. Right. And oh, it worked it, yeah. so beautifully with you. So tell me about the feeling of you suddenly have become mainstreamed. You know, you're still a part of the genre mm -hmm. and nothing is compromised about your work. It's still dark and intense and really frightening, but very character centered. And but now you're in The New York Times. You're tweeted by Stephen King. You are a best selling author. This is a big change in life. Yeah, it's strange. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if like I've got my head uh, wrapped totally around it. Um, you know, especially with the movie coming. And honestly, it's like I I, I don't want to disappoint people because it's not disappointing. It's been amazing <laughs> and super exciting. But also, like just you know, just the way my mind works because I, I so often dwell on worst case scenarios. It's hard not to <laughs> take what I'm experiencing and spin it into worst case scenarios. And, yeah, I'm the same. Um, I would you know I, I was just talking with Tanana Reeve Dew and her husband Stephen. You know, and, and they both mentioned, hey, you know, in their little intro, they'd mentioned that, you know, good stress is still stress. <laughs> um, and even though this has been like, you know, this past like five, six months has been some of the most exciting times of my career. It's also been the most stressful. And, you know, I'm still I don't have the answer how to, to navigate that. I mean, it's a great problem to have if I call it a problem. But, you know, as they said, good stress is still stress. So, you know, because when you're exposed to more people. The, you know, the, the inveterate Northeast pessimist that I am, it's like, oh, that means more people are going to not like you. <laughs> <laughs> but you did something very wise in maintaining your career, something your parents, most parents would approve of. Don't give mm. up your day job. <laughs> and you didn't well beyond the time you could have. Yeah, I mean, so part of the reason why, like, I, you know, I still might go back to teaching. Uh, you know, I'm on a year sabbatical, or I probably will go back is... 
one, I enjoy teaching for one thing. I, I think it definitely helps my writing. Like just being around the teenagers is a, is a daily lesson in voice in character, mm-hmm. um, especially with the slang that those kids use. Cause you can watch it evolve and change every like three to four years. Um, but also like the idea that, Hey, you know, my teaching job was, is both a financial security net and it gave me my crappy health insurance. <laughs> um, I always felt like I could, I only, I, I could write what it was that excited me. I didn't have to worry about maybe satisfying what, or satisfying the perception of what the market wants. It's like, you know what, I'm going to write this book. If people want it, great. If they don't, I'm still, I'm happy with it kind of thing. Still um, got a life and a career. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I greatly admire, you know, and this is, I mean, at some point I think I, I would like to, to give writing uh, at a uh, full-time a shot. And I, you know, I, I admire friends who do it because that's another pressure, right? First, like I experienced the pressure. Oh, I sold the book. Now I have the contract or right. now I have to follow up a head full of ghosts or, or this or that. And then I think the last step is like, okay, how do you write when, you know, you're, you're supporting your half of the family. I mean, to me, that that's another, you know, foreign pressure that I haven't really dealt with. Well, you had head full of ghosts option by focus features. So um, how, how long has that situation <laughs> gone on? Yeah. So the development process, right, development I, hell, we say. I think we're on our third financer, <laughs> okay. uh, but the same two sets of producers, you know, they've been great. They've been always enthusiastic and open with me in communicating uh, Allegiance Theater and, and Team Downey. Uh, we're there at the start. They're the ones that got Focus features for the first time. And then Focus, someone else took over Focus. So Focus bowed out. Um, yeah, it's it's been, <laughs> as you said, it's been sort of the ups and downs, almost like a typical Hollywood development story that can take a long time. Uh, it probably would have filmed summer of 2020, if not for the pandemic. Because uh, you know, they had, they pretty much had everything in place, but then the financer backed out. As so as... So many projects in 2020, you know, uh, went away because of obviously the bigger problems in the world. But um, yeah, it, it feels like momentum is building back towards, you know, maybe this could get made this year, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> well, especially on the heels of Knock at the Cabin. We'll get into the Hollywood experience yeah. that you actually had during this production of the movie, which as we're talking has not come out yet and I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> but um, you had the responsibility of following up a huge success with head full of ghosts. Tell me about the stress that, that you were talking about. Yeah. Stress being stress. Did you <laughs> feel that obligation that you had to do that you were, you needed to follow this up with something every bit as important? Yes. Um, especially with, so I'm with William Morrow now and, and uh, I signed with William Morrow for a head full of ghosts and everything after that. My first go around with the big publisher was with my two detective novels. The first one did, eh, okay. And the second one was dead on arrival. Oh. And that really, you know, killed my career for like four years. And and, it, and I allowed it to sort of, I allowed those negative thoughts to take over my head and in, in, in creative space. You know, I let jealousy and, and bitterness take over. Oh, and, wow. I, and, and I don't think it's any, I don't think it's any secret that once, once I let go or, or learn how to better address those feelings, once I let go of them, a head full of ghosts fell into my lap, literally. Wow. Did <laughs> um, you was, did you seek therapy or anything help or you did it on No, I probably should have. <laughs> but no, just a, a stubborn, you know, New Englander. <laughs> well, then you didn't need yeah. to because you made it through and and look what yeah. happened. Right. Full of ghosts. Yeah. So anyway, so with a head full of ghosts, um, you know, I turned it in and uh 
I was working on the next novel. And it was before I had Full of Ghosts had come out where I was writing most of the next novel, which was Disappearance at Devil's Rock. Right. Um, but I, I was feeling my own pressures like, wow, because I think, you know, this novel, I think people are going to like it, you know. And also that book was a lot easier to write. Like that book, I wrote it in like eight months, which is really absurd, short amount of time for me. And it's so a whole, quick read too. It yeah. reads like lightning. Well, thank you. So when I was writing Disappearance of Devil's Rock, I was, it was very hard. I felt like I was, you know, the proverbial blood from a stone and um, really quick, funny story. I have a mentor named Stuart O'Neill. He's like the nicest guy in the world. He's oh yeah. Called, he co-wrote with Stephen King. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so I wrote an email to, uh, to Stuart. I was like, Hey Stuart, you know, I don't think this book is as good as a head full of ghosts. It's so hard. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you know, all my complaints and doubts. And I sent it to him, you know, thinking that like Stuart would like, send me a pat on the head and say, hey, you know, you're a good writer. It'll be okay. He sent me back one line. But it was exactly what I needed to hear. He just wrote, eh, not everything you're right is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I laughed just like you did. But when I did, I felt all that pressure sort of go away. It's like, oh, he's right. I, I just need to make whatever this story is. I need to make it into the best thing that it is. Was um, it harder to write the next book after having this? I know you were overlapping in the process, but was it more of a labor for you? It was that book. Um, I'm very proud of that book, but it was a harder book, you know, for various reasons. One it was like a bunch of different third person narrators, which I'd never done before at novels at novel length. Um, it's just the story itself had a lot more moving parts, um, you know, and also because I was comparing it to a head full of ghosts, which wasn't fair because that was like, I hope every writer gets one of these. That was like the one, like the moment, like I think I'll raise dream about like an entire novel just falling into your lap. Like, it, the story literally just like, oh, here it is. <laughs> so it lived on inspiration alone with not nearly so much perspiration as Disappearance at Devil's Rock. Right. Yeah. Um, so I felt the more market pressure I felt was with Cabin, frankly, uh, because, you know, Headful goes sold well, Disappearance at Devil's Rock did not. So I was really paranoid. Like, oh, no, like I know what happened the first time. If the next one doesn't sell well, you know, I could be toast. Um I, I didn't let those thoughts come into the writing of Cabin because, I mean, it's a pretty grim, <laughs> unrelenting story. So it wasn't like I was trying to say, oh, yeah, this book about a home invasion that may or may not involve the apocalypse is going to be, you know, this big, uh, you know, big mainstream bestseller. Yeah. But, I, and it's a really freaking dark book. It is dark. Uh, for and, sure. and I'm really fascinated to see what the movie is going to be. But before we get to that, yeah. I'd love to... You know, every character you write comes from you and is an expression of you. And I, I'm just interested in how you create characters and where you go. And, you know, for me, I like taking the worst parts of my personality and amplifying them time a thousand and, mm. and see what, what comes of that. But that's only one character. Tell me about how you create your panoply of characters. Yeah, it's a great question. Um... You know, typically I'll start off like maybe writing down some notes just to get like the broad parts of them. Like, you know, where do they grow up? You know, where do they live? You know, what do they look like? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, especially if it's a novel, I don't want to say it's easy because it's not, but it feels easier because like, oh, the characters are really only going to live or become characters by the things they say and by the things they do. Um and as a young writer, I almost wrote everything in first person almost purposefully because not having been trained, I was like, okay, the first person narrator can be sort of the me stand in. How do I build those other characters? To me, it was a great lesson. 
writing a first person narrator and then working to build those other characters that you don't get to dip into their heads, right? Um, so I've sort of tried to carry that through, you know, my approach to, to these characters through most of my stories. And, and as you said, so many of them come from friends and family. So, uh, you know, they always have a, a different experience when they're reading my books. Um, you know, my brother was so worried. He's like, the dad in Headful Ghost is our dad. I'm like, he's not. I know he worked up at Parker <laughs> Brothers and stuff like that. And they're always worried about what my parents are going to think. So I'm, I'm, I am constantly like, not apologizing to my parents, but like, hey, I took some stuff, but... <laughs> You know, it's not all you. It's not. It's all not you. all you. Yeah, <laughs> not all you. It's 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 me too. Um, yeah. So I don't I don't know if I answered the question totally. Oh but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Richard Matheson once told me something that is obvious but profound. Books are internal, and film is external. Right. So, adaptation. Let's let's get to Cabin at the End of the World. Yeah. Because it's so dark. I remember when I read Cujo, something happens that's so dark in there. I kept turning pages going, when's this going to be waking from a dream that this right. didn't happen, but that never happens. You never wake up. And when I saw the movie, I thought, I can't take it if it does what the book does. Right. <laughs> so there is comparison with knock at the cabin because right. there are, well, several things that are relentlessly dark that happens in cabin at the end of the world that would be really one in particular that would be really difficult for a movie audience to take. And I'm curious how you felt when you saw the movie. So uh, I have to admit, I haven't seen it yet. I, I will ah, see it. Okay. I will see it, uh, it. Well, at the time of our taping in two days, I get to go to the, the U S world premiere with, you know, with the film with, with night and the actors. So Fantastic. I'm very excited. Now I, I have read, I did visit the set for two days and I have read the screenplay. So, you know, I do know, I do know what's going to happen. I you know, just haven't right. seen it. Um, but yeah, I know seeing it's going to be a different thing. It's uh, it's going to be strange. I mean, it's strange, like in the best way, but at the same time, you know, I can't lie and say that I'm not egoless about, <laughs> about yeah. it. Yeah. Without it's like spoiling thing. things. It, absolutely. Like, and I also know that, as you just said, with the Matheson quote, you know, what works in a novel doesn't necessarily work for film. Um, and I totally understand that. Um so I would say without getting too spoilery that <laughs> I would say the first two acts of the movie in the book line up pretty much like super close. And then the third acts are, are different. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. it's interesting because <laughs> this is your first experience with adaptation where yeah. it's actually become a film. Mm -hmm. And Stephen King famously says, you can't fuck up my books with a bad movie because the books are still here on the shelf and the book is on its shelf. Right. Uh, the movie is on its shelf. Um, so it doesn't change the book. It's just a good or a bad movie. Right. And it'll be interesting to, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what your reaction to it is. Yeah. Although, I mean, so uh, Stephen is sort of in a unique position, however, where I think the following is not true for him. Like for almost everybody else who has something adapted, the story becomes the movie because, you know, movie is uh, film is a much more dominant political art, political, sorry, cultural force. Uh, within our country right now it's just you can't deny like more people are right. going to see a movie than actually read the book so that's a little you know again the ego part of it is gonna be like ah oh, you know most people who know this cabin story are going to know it as the by far you know numbers wise more people are going to see the movie than read the book so that is going to be a little weird um and i can't lie about that um but at the same time having seen been to the set i am supremely confident that the that the 
that the performances by the actors are going to be amazing and that it's going to be a beautifully filmed movie. And the screenplay is really good too, even though, <laughs> you know, his ending and my ending are different. Um, you know, and I'm willing to die on a hill for my ending yeah, and <laughs> but different for different media. reasons, but they're yeah, different they are media different. and your ending is in your book right. and it's there for, no, this is true. and Absolutely. it's probably going to be another open door to your work that people see this movie and go, Paul Tremblay, I'll bet he has other books and I'd like to read this one. So that That's hopefully, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And when they do, they're going to want to read more. So did the actors, when you met them, did they fulfill the image that you had in your mind? Um, it's funny. I, I get asked all the time, like, hey, do you ever imagine a certain actor playing one of the characters? And I, like, yeah. I don't. Uh, yeah, if I, date, I, I daydream about movies being made, don't get me wrong, but because <laughs> I'm such a music nerd, uh, I daydream about, like, oh, if I could do the soundtrack for this movie, someone let me pick, you know, I want to pick the songs. I spend more time thinking about that. I love um, that part. So when I first... When I first walked into the set, it was funny. I just sort of like a producer just brought me in and they were just about to start shooting and they were inside the cabin that was in a warehouse soundstage, you know, and there were Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge tied to chairs and there was, you know, David Batista and there was Knight. And I just like met everybody really quickly and then went to this little, you know, they actually built an entire cabin, a little bedroom where they have mo a monitor and actually Knight watched most of the movie from there too, you know, to watch them work. And that was like a real like whiplash moment. Um, it didn't feel like I was walking into my own head. I, I'd actually, so weird brag, I'll say it. I had actually emailed Stephen King because any excuse to email him is one I would take. <laughs> I said, I'm hey, you know, with that. Yeah. yeah. So what's your experience? You know, because he had said, like, sometimes it's felt like I was going walking into my own head. He said it doesn't happen with every movie, but he said that it's happened to him a couple of times. So that for me, that wasn't the case. However, if it, it still felt like, whoa, this is the book, like this is, you know, the actors, especially, I think, have that emotional heart and core of the movie in their performances. And they all read the book, too, which is really cool. I had some nice conversations about that with them. Yeah, Bautista is absolutely... I didn't know he was playing it when I read the book. Yeah. When I saw that he was casting, <laughs> holy shit, yeah. <laughs> they, they nailed this. Well, it's interesting. About half of the stuff I've done with King, he has written the screenplays for, mm. and about half of them, he hasn't. So do you have designs to become a screenwriter as well? Yeah, I've started like dipping my toe in it a little bit. Um, I've been working with a couple of uh, very talented filmmakers and, you know, we've just been pitching like potential uh, adaptations of some of my short fiction. Um, but again, you know, uh, like my similar, I talked about going from short stories to a novel, like I wouldn't be so arrogant to think, oh, I could just jump into running screenplays. I know it's a totally different skill set. Um, so I've been messing around with it a little bit. It has been kind of fun. I've enjoyed sort of, you know, the challenge of that different, different storytelling mode, but also <laughs> I have like an inner, like so many people do, like I, I have this inner sort of naysayer is like three acts. Why not four acts? Why not five? Like, haven't you ever seen like, you know, Asian horror movies, Korean horror movies, they don't have three acts. Um, so that part of it has been a little, like, the, and that's just me. Like I need to like tamp down the inner sort of old punk in me. <laughs> well, I think all the rules in in screenwriting are bullshit anyway, because yeah. it, it, you read a script and you either like it and you're engaged by it or mm -hmm. not. And um, I think most screenwriting courses are taken by studio uh, executives uh, to to be able to tell you in a meeting, in a, a Zoom meeting to say, well, no, by 
page 10, this needs to happen by act two, this needs to happen. I think if you write a script that engages from page one all the way through, you've written a great script. Right. It doesn't have to fulfill all those just seemingly invented rules. Because certainly right. Preston Sturgis and the great writers of the 40s and 50s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, they didn't have their Sid Field books next to them. Yeah. <laughs> I did read one of those, yes. Um, <laughs> of course you did. And written by a guy who's never had a movie produced. So yeah. that's who you want to read books about screenwriting. <laughs> no, actually, he's, his books yeah. are really valuable and really good. But it's interesting that most screenwriting books are written by people who've never either sold or had a screenplay produced. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I read his screenplay. I was angry at times in the moment, but afterwards I sort of enjoyed thinking about, okay, why did I, why did I so vehemently disagree with us on like a storyteller mode? So, but it, it made me think and, and think more about like the gears of a screenplay compared to like the gears of a novel. So even if I didn't agree with everything, it was definitely a worthwhile endeavor on my part. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a different machine. It's a different mm. machine. And writing prose is for the love of the words. Like I said in the introduction, you know, uh, uh, screenwriting is a blueprint for cast and crew right. and all these other people. And you can't write internally and write flowery and write prose and expect people to turn every page when they're looking for what's going to happen next. Right. So the beauty of what you do in writing fiction and writing novels and the like is that you're able to weave this beautiful fabric of language in telling a story that can go as deep or not as you want to as, uh, uh, into the psyche of your characters. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. No, it's, it, it's great. Um, you are also one of the jurors for the Shirley Jackson Awards. So the state of publishing, particularly in the horror field right now, is so nobody knows what's going on. <laughs> you know, it's the 70s through the 90s, there were dozens and dozens of well-known and loved horror authors, horror novels and the like. Right. Now we've got you, we've got Grady, we've got the classic guys, we have Katrina Ward, we have lots of interesting people. But these awards allow you to introduce people like me to authors I would otherwise not know because there aren't the marketing budgets there were before at the publishing companies and right. there aren't that many published. So tell me about how that works and how satisfying it must be to you. Sure. So uh, just for a point of like accuracy, I, I was one of the co-founders of the awards. I'm no longer a juror, oh. um, but like I've, I've worked with the awards for over 10 years um, so the short of it is, um, myself and another writer, John Langan, who's fantastic. If you've ever read the fisherman, uh, if you haven't, you should definitely read it. Yeah. Um, we, had, so we had heard that the international horror guild was closing up shop and we were like, Oh, we thought that was really bad news. I mean, the stokers are great, but we always, I, I like the, the balance or the counterbalance of having two different horror awards. Yeah. More horror awards, the better. So, uh, there were five of us. I mentioned John, myself. Brett Cox, Joanne Cox, and Sarah Langan, who's also a wonderful uh, writer on her part. We um, we said, okay, we're going to start a horror award. Who should we, or what should we name it after? And almost unanimously and right off the bat, it was Shirley Jackson. Um, and <laughs> uh, we got the permission from the estate. So once that happens, like, oh, I guess we better do this then. And just sort of took it from there. And, and I think for those who of, don't know, Shirley yeah. Jackson wrote The Haunting, one of the greatest horror novels of all time. Yes. Uh, oh, absolutely. The Haunting, Haunting of Hill House. House. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
from there, I mean, it was really like the idea in 2007 was, you know, there aren't a lot of books with horror written on the spine, but there were a lot of books that were horror novels being published. They just weren't being marketed as horror because publishers, particularly in 2007, were afraid of that term. They're still afraid that some of them are still afraid of that term, but not as much as 2007, sort of with the 90s crash, still so fresh, uh, you know, in publishing memory. So that was really the goal was like, hey, you know, there's a lot more books being published that are horror that, that aren't labeled that we want to celebrate that. So, you know, it's been it's been the most gratifying part is to see all these people who have been inspired by and are fans of Shirley Jackson's work, first and foremost, you know, from people like, you know, Neil Hopkins to uh, Victor Laval to Jonathan Lethem, like we all these people like spoke at our <laughs> at our award ceremony. It was just really cool to see the vast reach of her influence. And I don't know if it was just the zeitgeist or, you know, once after we started the awards, it wasn't too long after that, where it seemed like Shirley had a little bit of a rebirth where, you know, uh, I think it was Penguin put out a collection of short stories and then the Ruth, Flan Ruth Franklin autobiography. And most recently mm -hmm. a collection of her letters and obviously Mike Flanagan's Netflix show. So, you know, that's been really cool just to see people either discovering or rediscovering Shirley's work. Cause her work to me feels like, it feels like she wrote about the 21st century despite not living in the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, Haunting of Hill House, the lottery in particular is one yeah. of those that seems so modern. Absolutely. So what about publishing? The phenomenon of eBooks, I read more eBooks than I read paper books. Hmm. Just because of traveling, I can carry around several at a time. Um, do you feel there's the same connection with the reader going electronically regardless of the page? Um, I, I'm not sure because it's hard for me not to put my own personal thing on it because I much prefer reading an actual book to an ebook. And I can't really explain why. Like I just feel like I read deeper if it's in a if it's an actual book as opposed to an ebook. Now there's no denying it's much easier <laughs> to carry an iPad onto a plane, you know, with a you know, two or three books on there as opposed to you know, as opposed to lugging like a big book with you. Um, I sort of ran into that a little bit with my own book, The Paul Bearers Club, which came out last summer. Yeah. Um, the physical hardcover of the book, um, there are two narrators. There's the main story, but there's someone, because the book is presented as a found memoir. And the person who found this memoir started crossing stuff out and writing in the margins. And with the physical book, we were actually able to publish it that way, which is a lot of fun. But with the ebook, you can't do that. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, when my publisher first put out the ebook, they put out one that was unreadable, which is not ideal. <laughs> no, not. <laughs> and it, no. And it took them a few weeks to fix it. So it was kind of a nightmare. But yeah. So maybe I should have thought more about the ebook presentation. <laughs> well, what sells more these days, ebooks or paper books? I think it, um, that's a great question. I'm not sure. Like, I, I try not to dig into those numbers too much because I think that adds to my stress, but <laughs> you I don't think, need more of that. I think I actually have quite a few ebook readers, um, partly because I think of the Stephen King tweet when it happened. Like, there were some, like, there were some Kindle deals, Amazon deals. Yeah. So I think that caught me like a huge influx of readers. So my publisher has mentioned, oh, you know, you do, you tend to do very well with ebooks. Um, so why not? So let's let's give them ebook that they can't read with your newest novel. Uh, <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> yeah. So the the whole we started to get into the world of publishing, particularly horror publishing, and how there was this boom from the seventies through the nineties. That and you mentioned the crash, not just in the genre but in publishing right. in general. What is the future of publishing? Do you have any idea, particularly within uh, yeah. the genre? 
I mean, I, I think the genre is, is publishing wise is, is as healthy as it's ever been in terms of, and we can continue to do better. You know, we shouldn't be satisfied, but in terms of the number of own voices now, you know, having, you know, being able to publish and tell their stories, um, you know, both in terms of, of queer writers and, and writers of color, um, you know, we're seeing a lot more horror published, you know, for, you know, from those people, which is amazing. Um, you know, it's never going to be the eighties again, where like a million dollar, <laughs> a million dollar advances were being thrown left and right to, to mass marketing deals. It's just, it's, it's, it's gone. It's just not how publishing works. Um, so, but like broadly, the future of publishing, I have no idea. I, I mean, I honestly thought it was going to be in the tank by now, but, but uh, in terms of physical books, but independent bookstores have made a huge rebound, a huge, huge push, which is great. Um, yeah, one thing about them, the small yeah. press is they're doing well because their standards are lower. They have not quality standards, yeah. but in income, they don't need to make as much to survive. They don't have giant uh, uh, groups of employees and the like. Right. And the independent bookstores go hand in hand with them for signings and things. You know, I've not had a mainstream Absolutely. book released, but I have had small press books released. And to be able to go to Dark Delicacies in Burbank and do signings there, people so love it. Then you've got the physical book itself to sign and to keep as something special that you can't do with your iPad. Right. <laughs> a lot of people sign that <laughs> iPad. So Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, having those, the booksellers hand sell your books is there's no, you can, I can't underestimate like what that does to, you know, the life of a book or even the career of a writer. It's so important. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, with, with horror, <laughs> I mean, I think there's, it's undeniable that horror is doing very well. I love it when <laughs> mainstream sort of journalists talk about horror having a moment because that implies it's going to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. There's nice. definitely sort of like a backhand <laughs> compliment in there. But honestly, like the punk music fan to me sort of likes that idea. I mean, I don't think I don't think horror can ever be the predominant force in culture. Horror should always be a little bit on the outside. Horror should be at the edges, you know, poking at the edges of, of mainstream culture. And yeah, it's supposed should, to be rude. Yeah. Or you know, or transgressive at the very least, right? Like yeah. the, it's supposed to explore like the really difficult questions that most people really don't want to face. And that's not a moral judgment or a character judgment on people, but like I don't know. My favorite horror gets at, I think, the the most difficult questions that art can ask in, in interesting ways. You know, that's why, I, as an adult, besides you know, besides monsters being cool, <laughs> you know, the you know, yeah. I guess the adult intellectual part of it would be that's that's what really jazzes me up. And I, and that's why for me, like some of the, like the darkest and most disturbing stuff can be weirdly hopeful, because. I just find hope in that act of communication. My, my dog agrees with me. I don't know if that was on camera or on the microphone, <laughs> but the idea is like, oh, you see, you see this this way too. I find hope in that exchange. Well, it's interesting. You see that way too, being something very much a part of the horror community. We talk about this a lot that there are horror film festivals, there are mm -hmm. horror conventions, uh, in ways that other genre don't have them. There's a bonding between outsiders. We right. get together. Horror is a very, it's not mainstreamed. I mean, it is in, in the commercial sense that yes. the biggest movies are, uh, and the biggest grossing films that don't have high budgets are often in the horror genre because they're not reliant on movie stars right. and things that other movies are. But there is a community of like, 
we bond over the monsters, we bond over the outsiders, we bond in this way that is an incredibly important part of this community. Do you go out into it much? Do you go to signings? Do you go to conventions and the like? Oh, absolutely. I mean, particularly uh, before the pandemic, you know, that part of it slowed down a little bit. But yeah, no, I mean, I, that's where I, I met so many of my contemporaries who are great friends going to, to writers conventions. Um, and uh, I, I've been to the Telluride Horror Show movie festival three times. And it's so much fun. And yeah, I mean, that that part of it for me, it's less about, you know, I know some writers or maybe even streamers talking about networking. And for me, the value has always been sort of what you've been talking about. I always come back from a convention feeling like my bad, even though I'm exhausted because I've been probably <laughs> out too late and doing things like that. But uh, I come back with my writer batteries recharged. I come back excited hearing people talking about the books or movies that they love that, that, that feeds my, that feeds my creativity. Like I just want to do something cool like that, like, or, or just sort of glance off it in some way if I can, you know, and that's, that's sort of like how I think as a writer. What are your favorite themes first as a writer and secondly, as a reader? So um, I think it's fair to say like so, a lot of my novels deal with a supernatural ambiguous element. Um, so, you know, I'd said earlier, lean into your obsession. So that's certainly one of them. Um, and for me, like, you know, it's such a 21st century thing, like the idea that <laughs> that information and truth has become so difficult to figure out or so malleable, more malleable than we want it to be, like living in the age of misinformation. And to me, I mean, that so many of my favorite horror stories sort of live in that in-between space where we don't know for sure what's happening um, or we don't know for sure if something supernatural is happening or not. I, I sort of love that. I'm, uh, especially at, at the longer lengths of novels, I, I, find, I find those kind of stories really thrilling. Um, the idea that we just don't know, partly because again, it feels like, I don't know, it feels like our day to day. Um, and any horror stories, I, most horror stories deal with death in some way, right? And so I think like when you pick at ambiguity or even pick at the supernatural, if it's not like super overt, like that picks at subconsciously the ultimate question we have all waiting for us, like what happens when we die? Like we, we have beliefs, but we just don't know. And I think most horror stories, whether it's direct or oblique, sort of, sort of hit at that. I don't know. Like I'm just very interested in how characters react to that, to that sort of in-between space. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I love giant monsters and <laughs> I, I write more short stories about giant monsters and I dream of someday writing a giant monster novel. I just haven't done it yet. <laughs> that will become a big movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, it's really been a pleasure talking to you and uh, and finding out about your work and and your process and the like. I'm a huge fan and I thank you for joining us and I wish you good luck on the movie. Thank you. Thank you, Mick. This is my pleasure. Absolutely. An honor. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.